As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Live from a bunker in the heart of the Ozarks, a podcast that doesn't mind if you adapt us into a movie as long as you cast one of the Chris's in the lead role. It's Sif Pop. Welcome to Sif Pop, streaming live on Mixler every Friday afternoon or available to download later in your podcast feed. Unless, of course, you're a patron. Patrons get those perks. I'm Aaron Dicer from YourMovieFriend.com, and each week I'll be joined by a pop culture guru to chat about movies, television, whatever else from the pop culture universe is on our minds, except this week. It's a little different. It's a sift swift. Uh, this happens every once in a while where we have an interview come in, something like that, maybe a topic to discuss. We just kind of take the whole episode to chat about it. Uh, got a chance to connect with a guy named Anthony Johnston. Anthony without an H, so not Anthony. Johnston with a T, so not Johnson. Anthony Johnston. Uh, he is a graphic novelist, a writer, uh, most well-known for, as you'll hear in the interview, Atomic Blonde. Uh, he wrote the graphic novel that that is based on. Fascinating conversation for me about how things are ad uh, adapted, his perspective as the original you know, writer of the work. Um, got into a lot of fun stuff, plus his background, kind of where he came from, how he grew up, what he learned to do. So I had a really good time chatting with him. There are a couple things I want to do before we get to that, though. One of them is that I completely blew it on the Summer Sum Game Award. Now, we have a couple contests here uh, on Sif Pop. One of them is the Oscar contest, which is going to be coming up here, you know, uh, in as the next year begins. I guess we're still like five months away from that. But the other is the Summer Sum Game, which just finished off a couple months ago. And we had a couple winners who tied for the win. And, of course, the reward is you get to have a shout-out on Sif Pop for whatever you want to say and I totally spaced on that. Uh, they both have things that they sent me, so I want to make sure I do that and give them their award. Up first is Nick Gomes. Uh, Nick says this, Hey, Sif Pop, just wanted to start off by saying I've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and it's definitely pulled me into the movie culture more and got me interested in movies that I wouldn't have given a chance before. I actually started watching less trailers now because of your Zero Frames pledge. Way to go, Nick. Way to go. And I've come to appreciate it. Your podcast inspired me to start my own podcast with my friend Josh called Navi Tales, where we break down story and lore in video games such as Zelda, Pokemon, Destiny, and Kingdom Hearts. We try to emulate the same passion about video games that you do with movies. Thanks for all the great content you put out, and I look forward to more episodes and contests in the future. Much love, Nick. Thanks, Nick, and congratulations again. And if again, if you want to check out the podcast they're doing, uh, it's called Navi Tales. I'm guessing you just search for that in your podcast player. Uh, and I'm glad you've taken the Zero Frames pledge. Hashtag Zero Frames. The other winner is Chris Breckenridge at Chris Sisms. 
on Twitter. I think that's supposed to be instead of criticisms. Criticisms? Very nice. Here's his shout-out. I'd simply like to give my shout-out to Andrew. Thank you for all the entertainment you've given us through your geniality, wit, and enthusiasm for movies. Wishing you all the best as you take care of your health. To adapt a quote from your favorite series, may you find your tower, Andrew, and breach it, and may you climb to the top. Can't wait to see you at the top, brother. P.S. Aaron, you're great, too. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the shout-out to Andrew. I did get a chance to talk to him recently, and I have had several people ask me for updates uh, on Andrew, who co-hosted this podcast till he stepped away a while ago to focus on his health. Um, he's doing good, really good. Has uh, an amazing dog named Roland uh, that is his partner now, and he wants you to know, he said, that he hears all the encouragement and the love, and it means a lot to him, and he's very appreciative. So thank you. Keep pouring that out on Andrew. Um, he's, uh, he's doing good, and a lot of that has to do with the love he's receiving from his community. So thanks for that. All right, on to the interview. Um, before we get into that, just a reminder, if you want to support this podcast network, three bucks a month at patreon.com slash studio DNA will do the trick. Lots of fun there. You get uh, pre-episodes, bonus episodes, all directly into your own personal podcast feed. You can check that out at patreon.com slash studio DNA. I also want to let you know if you are looking for reviews of the movies that came out this weekend, like we usually do on Sif Pop. Uh, I can quickly tell you that so far I've just seen Happy Death Day. We'll be seeing The Foreigner later this weekend. I will have reviews for both on my YouTube channel, uh, which you can just search for Your Movie Friend at YouTube. I can tell you Happy Death Day, just a really quick brief review, is much better than it had any right to be. It is a lot of fun. It's entertaining. I think a lot of it comes down to performances and likable characters. Listen up, Hollywood. Likable characters. You cannot underestimate. The difference it makes to enjoy spending time with the people on the screen. And Happy Death Day uh, does that well. Of course, it's, you know, basically a straight rip of Groundhog Day, except of the horror version. And I mean that in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's plenty of cliche, plenty of plot holes, all that kind of stuff that you're typically going to find. But it doesn't mean as much because you're having a fun time. Uh, it's also not very horror-y. It's a PG-13 horror movie. And so the violence is down quite a bit, and it's more storytelling even than horror moments. So uh, that aspect of it appealed to me as well, because I'm not a horror fan. So this is a quick brief review on Happy Death Day. And if, you, of course, you want to see the whole thing, uh, check out my YouTube, and I'll have a review of The Foreigner up there as well. Here's a conversation with Anthony Johnston. Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about, so are you native to England? Uh, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about the culture you kind of grew up in and, and, uh, and made you who you are. Uh, yeah, I am native to England. Yeah, I was born in Birmingham, which is the, uh, the second biggest city in the country, uh, in the right smack bang in the middle of England. And mm. uh, I had a very normal English blue collar early life um you know i was raised in a sort of in a small town my father worked in a factory my mother went after i was sort of raised you know had part-time jobs and what have you as a you know a cleaner and a store clerk and things like that uh very very normal life and existence i went to public schools nothing truly remarkable at all you know it was very sort of you know boring life um in you know, one sense. But what I did have was lots of encouragement to read um, and lots of opportunity to do so, both through just, you know, getting lucky with some good teachers while I was at school uh, and also having a uh, a public library 
quite near me within like sort of a 10 minute bicycle ride when I was a child uh, that was well stocked with lots and lots of fiction both for children and teenagers and adults. And fiction for teenagers wasn't quite so much a thing back then. It was normally just either kids or adults. But there were some things, uh, you know, and I was a fairly advanced reader, so I I just read, you know, the adult stuff (laughs) when I was (laughs) quite young. Um, And so I got into things like, I started reading like war fiction and sci-fi and fantasy. That was where I first read things like, Harry Harrison's Stainless Steel Rat series, where I discovered Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, Fafford and the Grey Mouser stuff, and Moorcock in fantasy. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, the Wizard of Earthsea stuff, I found that there first. But I also read things like Paul Brickhill's World War II novels of uh, Douglas Bader's Escape and the, the Dam Busters and Colditz stories and all this sort of stuff. So I was wow. really immersed in kind of... Uh, what what you might call adventure fiction, which I think has kind of played a big role in what I now do because I, I mean, I love genre stuff anyway. You know, I love sci-fi, fantasy, detective, horror, all that sort of, you know, what people think of as genre fiction in all media, not just books, you know, comics, movies, whatever. Um, but more specifically, and certainly when I write my own stuff, no matter what the genre is, I always tend to gravitate towards the sort of adventure stories i'm not i'm not really a sort of kitchen sink drama writer Mm -hmm. um or a sort of midlife crisis literary fiction writer uh you know and those things have their place and i know they have an audience and some people love them but they do nothing for me whatsoever (laughs) um i like plot I, you know, I, I like writing and reading adventure stories of one kind or another. And that doesn't always cool. mean that they have to be things, you know, big, massive things where something blows up. But there has to be some kind of a plot generally for me to really sort of sink my teeth into it. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the titles you're mentioning, I have no clue what they even are. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not well versed uh, in that literature uh, I do think it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, uh, teachers had a lot to do with kind of shaping that passion for reading, that passion for exploring these adventures through the written word. And I find that almost with everybody I talk to who is passionate about, especially things in culture or the arts or those kind of things, is there's always that teacher, you know, somewhere in the background. And it's just a reminder that, man, those those people are so important they, you know, they really are. It's incredible. And it really is. And that's why, I mean, you know, I'm a great advocate for paying teachers, frankly, a lot more than they generally get paid, especially yeah. in the public school system, because they are so important and so valuable to, uh, you know, to children growing up and especially, yeah, to people who then go on to be, you know, creators or innovators or engineers or programmers or people who sort of, you know, put their mind to things. Uh, teachers, yeah, are always so important in that i got really lucky i had i mean certainly at least two and you could probably you know say three really good teachers who in various ways encouraged me to be creative to explore that side of what i was doing encouraged me to write read things that i wrote god you know i think back and think how terrible (laughs) those things (laughs) must have been but you know 
bearing in mind my age and what have you at the time that this was happening you know they i I hope that they could sort of see through that and go okay well this is terrible but there's clearly potential (laughs) yeah um right yeah i just as i say i got really lucky and also specifically in uh the two teachers in particular that i'm thinking of again not being dismissive of genre um you know they didn't because I was reading by the time I got to sort of middle and high school I was reading nothing but sci-fi and fantasy 24 hours a day and there were some teachers who really disapproved of that you know who really did not Uh like that Uh, whether it was comics or novels or the movies I was watching frankly you know and thought that I was kind of that I should be reading more worthy uh, stuff you know and watching more worthy films and all that kind of thing and I was just like but this is what interests me this is what excites me and yeah these two teachers in particular i'm thinking of one was in middle school one was in high school and neither of them they were both they didn't care they had the attitude of like as long as you're reading and enjoying reading and my parents had the same attitude bless them which is i've always been very grateful for they were like as long as you're reading and you're enjoying reading then we don't really care what you read not from a neglectful point of view but I mean, sure. in terms of the genre you know it's like you read right. whatever yeah, you yeah, want to yeah. read because reading itself and i i've carried this attitude forward myself i firmly believe this reading anything as long as you're enjoying it reading itself is more important than the actual content of what you're reading in an early stage you know in the sort of yeah. early development stage oh we were We've we I've got four boys and uh, you know raising them to be readers very specifically because I don't think there's any uh, avenue of storytelling that activates the brain in uh, an like an intelligence and educational way uh, as well as reading does. Reading is there's just something about it that that is just it's almost a teaching element itself. I agree. Uh, to really find that love. So, yeah, it's been it's been exciting to try to at least make sure, you know, those developmental years that they're really excited about digging into books and increasing their vocabulary and understanding how to communicate through, you know, written word. Well, and that's really important with young boys these days as well, because, uh, you know, sort of literary literacy habits, I should say, not literacy itself, but literacy habits in terms of I've got nothing to do. What shall I do? Oh, I'll pick up a book is really, really decreasing uh, in boys more so than girls, uh, you know, over the sort of last 20 years. Um, So and I know that, you know, lots of teachers, librarians, parents are sort of, you know, a bit concerned about this and are really trying to reverse that trend. So absolutely. Yeah. If you can get your boys to all enjoy reading, it's one thing to get somebody to read, but to get them to want to read, that's the that's the real trick. And if you can do that, then. You know, generally, I think you have a reader for life if you can instill that in somebody from an early age. And I should uh, emphasize that I, uh, you know, I'm not just talking about novels as well. I one of my earliest memories is of my father reading a comic to me before I could read. You know, I was just looking Mm -hmm. at pictures while he was reading it to me while I was sat on his lap. And so I've been reading comic books alongside novels literally for as long as i could read you know my entire life since i learned to read i've been reading comics as well as uh fiction and you know as a result it's impossible for me to suppose what would have happened you know if if i'd come to comics later or if i'd read comics and then come to books or whatever but they have both been just completely concurrent in my life and uh yeah, you know, they both served to instill in me this 
deep love of reading and fiction and obviously then sort of led to me you know encouraged me to um make my own stories uh when did that happen like when did that transition happen for you where it was like hmm i'm gonna be the one now telling the story i i can't remember very young i mean very you know young enough that i can't feels like right from the beginning (laughs) yeah well i mean it probably wasn't because you know i was learning to read when i was five years old so it probably wasn't or four years old or whatever you know so it probably wasn't actually uh you know that at that point but i don't remember much frankly from you know those sort of years of my childhood um i don't remember apart from a few flashes here and there like i say that memory of my father reading a comic to me i don't actually specifically remember my life before i could read i don't remember a time before i was able sure. to read books um yeah. and so at, and at the same time that is mingled in with well yes and i was making up my own stories at the same time so yeah, it's but, impossible for me to say, but it does go, say, very young, goes back a long way. But what's like the first uh, like written piece that you remember looking at and going, I'm proud of this. This is cool. I like what I did here. Oh, wow. That's a tough one, actually, because my memory is is sort of of my early years is quite poor, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, yeah, mine too, actually. And uh, trying to actually remember what order things happened in in those early years is quite difficult um sure i do remember i know that when i was quite young uh and by that i mean i think i was like 10 years old uh okay. my mother bought a typewriter an old-fashioned big metal manual typewriter for ostensibly for herself but i think she knew that i would want to use it as well um and i started bashing out stories short stories on this typewriter um and i i remember specifically doing that and writing stories on there and thinking that they were pretty good uh mainly because at the time i think that was around the time i was obsessed with reading the three investigators stories uh which were the alfred hitchcock presents sort of mm-hmm. kind of like hardy boys but with a more with a bit more of an edge more of a sort of yeah horror criminal mystery edge to them um, yeah, a little more macabre yeah well and a little more you know the, the the villains that they were up against were more just kind of you know a bit nastier and the mysteries there was sure. all, the mysteries were always a bit more complex and stuff and i was obsessed with those books at the time and i remember writing several stories that were basically just blatant rip-offs of the three investigators <laughs> on that typewriter but i also remember sitting down and doodling i used to make my own little comic strips uh, and this is where what i was like to say about the order of events i can't actually remember which of those i started doing first but certainly yeah. you know when i was about 10 or 11 years old i was already typing out uh you know sort of short stories on three or four sheets of paper on a on a that's cool banging them out on a typewriter on the kitchen table <laughs> uh when was the first time somebody else took notice like you know the first piece that you wrote that somebody else went um We'd like to have something to do with this. We'd like to publish this. We'd like to, you know, invite you to work on this, that kind of stuff. When did that start happening? Oh, well, that was many years later. I mean, outside of school, I was basically I was I used to thoroughly enjoy any kind of creative writing assignment in school. Um, And so, you know, that was uh, what set me along thinking, oh, okay, this is something I would really actually like to do a lot. Um, And then in high school, I got into role playing games, Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of thing. And. Mm -hmm. My creative outlet 
for the next 10 years, more or less, was mostly focused on that. Not to say that I wasn't still writing stories, but I focused most of my sort of, you know, creative story writing energy on uh, making and running role playing scenarios and campaigns for my friends ah. we did that for literally for years and years and years uh, and that was a great outlet and then uh i got into my first professional gigs were actually writing for a role-playing magazine um oh nice not fiction writing you know sort of stuff about sure. journalism about role-playing games hey can, uh, can i ask you something yeah have have you do you watch um, do you watch much television a all? little, a little. Part, okay there's a show called Harmon quest have you seen about you know this show, heard about this show at all? I have not, no. Okay, so it's Dan Harmon, who's the guy who created the TV show Community. Sure, um, yeah. Those kind of things. And basically, it's a live audience with him and his friends sitting around pl- uh, playing a role-playing game, similar to Dungeons & Dragons. And then they have animators animate the tale to go along with it. So it's ah. just kind of this interesting like humor and a role-playing game and i mean if that's something you really dig i think it's you know something you might you might enjoy well uh, it's a lot of fun it's sort of performative role-playing uh yeah has, exactly has, has become quite a thing over the last few years there's actually a show the show i do on justly maligned is on a network called the incomparable and they do uh one of those shows as a podcast called total party kill which is nice. yeah just them playing D and you know and it's one of the most popular shows on the network people love it and then you've yeah. got of course you know things like will wheaton's tabletop series when that was running uh you know which wasn't quite the same thing because it wasn't an extended campaign but it was the same let's all sit around and play a game and people will tune in and watch us play it uh, i know it, it's you know but i i, I was going to say it's bizarre but i mean i've watched and enjoyed those sure. shows myself so it's not that uh, you know i i can't really <laughs> throw stones <laughs> No, it's it's really interesting. The things that uh, that seem like minor things that we loved growing up, or those kind of things, are all of a sudden becoming like spectator sports. It's just right. it's one of those it's one of those interesting things about how culture moves and shifts. And well, and it's and, what know. happens when the nerds take over. You know, right? I mean, exactly. Role playing to me was never a minor thing, but it was an underground niche thing. I was very aware right. Exactly. Of that. That's what um, I meant. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understood. Um, but it was it did consume my life for a long time. Uh, there was a period where, when I was in high school, <laughs> my friends and I worked out that um, at one point we were playing, we were role playing three nights a week and all weekend, uh, pretty much constantly for a period of about six months. So we would literally role play on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and then all day Saturday and Sunday. Uh, wow. Like even Monday, Wednesday, Friday evenings, I mean, after sure. school and then all day Saturday and Sunday. And in that period for about six months that we were doing that, we were running somewhere in the region of 30 different role playing campaigns uh, wow. using about 15 different rule sets. And I was G- I was games mastering about 20 of those 30 campaigns. Wow. <laughs> I look back and I'm like, how how did I ever have the time and energy to do this? That's amazing. But that's what happens when you're, you know, 16, 17 years old and you have all, it's so, you know, you don't need to sleep, you don't need to eat much, you just sort of barrel through life, you know, oh, to be oh, young I know. again. <laughs> I know, I've got, uh, my all four of my boys are teens now, so right. we just sent our first off to college and so, yeah, they're like 19, 17, 15, and 13 right now. So, and they just burn yeah. energy, don't they? They're yeah. just like, they're yeah, on like, fire the whole time. <laughs> I don't understand how you're alive. I don't understand. You get like three hours of sleep. What are you doing? 
Right, and then spend all day burning all this energy and somehow, (laughs) yeah, still have energy left over. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, let's continue on. So then your professional career kind of kicked in. Yeah, well, I mean... It did, but not in a linear fashion. My life has, has been anything but linear in general, to be honest. <laughs> um, I uh, I sort of crashed and burned in high school. Um, I did a... I actually, well, no, let's... We have... Um, I, I'm not sure how this compares to the American system, but we have our exams at 16 here, and then you can stay on for an optional two years and do a further set of exams at 18, and then you go to university. Um, uh-huh. And I did really well in my exams at 16, uh, and then I stayed on for those two years, what we call sixth form, to do my A-levels. And uh, unfortunately, I spent most of that time getting drunk. So I kind of crashed and burned on my A-levels and did not yeah. go to university. And so I, do, I don't have a degree. And I went into the workforce and then, again, got very lucky. I was just an office junior in a stationary supplies company. Um, but the guy who ran the company basically sort of saw me working away at this and I was doodling in my spare time and all that sort of thing and he, he just took me aside one day and he was like what the hell are you doing here go back to college you don't you know you don't belong here <laughs> this is not for you uh, and really encouraged me and so I did I went to art college and I studied graphic design and I actually ended up becoming a graphic designer and eventually moved into magazine design uh, and as a result of which I've moved all over the country uh, a bit yeah. for work uh, and I did that right up until uh what would that be 2002 which is when i uh quit that to go full-time freelance as a writer um but i didn't actually start writing in earnest writing fiction in earnest until the late 90s um up until that point i was you know doing all the role-playing stuff and i say i was doing journalism and for a while i thought that maybe i would be a non-fiction writer you know that i would be a magazine journalist or something um but then the the fiction sort of interest in fiction took over again. And uh, and I also got back into comics because I'd been out of them for a while when I was sort of in my early 20s. And that just kind of, you know, one thing led to another there. And I ended up going into uh, the comics field basically full time for a long time um, from 2002 what was that? Well, until now. Uh, and then along the way in 2006, 2007, I began writing video games as well. And then just last year, um, I decided to get back into novel writing because my first book was actually a novel. It was an illustrated novel called Frightening Curbs back in 2000, which won an award at Book Expo America. Um, oh, nice. But then I uh, I didn't follow it up with another novel. I did one work for hire novel in 2005, but I didn't follow it up with another original novel until last year (laughs) so it's like i say my my career is and life has been anything but linear um so as far as writing like different formats different contents uh you've you've done comic books graphic novels novels um you've written for video games and had an um uh, graphic novel adapted into a movie, right? Am yes. I missing anything? Uh, n- not professionally. Uh, okay. Well, short stories. I mean, I've written a few short stories here and there. Sure. That have been published. Yeah. Um, but no, I used to write plays when I was at school because for a while, oh, nice. th- for a while, I thought I was going to be an actor, and so I actually wrote and directed several plays uh, with the drama department at high school. Um, uh, but then, obviously, didn't become an actor, and I have must admit that I haven't written a play. Uh, since and i haven't professionally written uh for the screen 
yet. Although, right. uh, you know, that is an area that uh, post-Atomic Blonde, that is an area that I'm looking at and, you know, I'm talking to several people about and I can't really say any more than that. Um, but no, in, <laughs> in, in terms of what's out there now, yes, it's graphic novels, comic books, uh, fiction novels and video games. So um, you, you thought about being an actor. I'm curious to know, like, if you look at the, those acting today, what kind of actor do you think you would have would have been like what kind of roles would you have been taking who's like a somebody that's acting now that you think hey i could i could have had that career i could have done that well i think i mean you know the first thing to say is that i think i probably would have been a, a bad and out of work actor i don't <laughs> i don't i don't actually think that i would have been you know all that good but supposing that i was let's say that right. you know, i, I yes. went to acting school and and came out the other side um it's really difficult for me to say. I think I probably would have been a sort of British character actor, the sort of person who, you know, not to say that I wouldn't have had maybe a major role on a show somewhere, but it would have been a very firmly, I think, British character actor style. Uh, I don't think, you know, I haven't got the looks to be a leading man, and I don't think that my style was, um, shall we say, smooth enough to be a sort of So maybe of, you know, somebody like... Maybe somebody like Broadbent or uh, Tom Wilkinson, something like that. Yeah, maybe some of that. Less regional, maybe than than, than some of those. <laughs> but but yeah, absolutely. Somebody along those lines, you know. Somebody or uh, Pete Postlethwaite, you know. That yeah, sort that's of, a good choice. Who was an actor that I greatly admired. I mean, I loved his work. Um, and yeah, yeah, somebody like that who kind of just you know good and respected, but never going to be Clark Gable. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So of those formats that you've written for, you know, is there one you feel most at home at? Like, do you feel there's there's one where uh, that really speaks to you? Well, I mean, well, comics is the obvious uh, answer, because just because I've worked now in comics for almost 20 years. So, right. you know, I am very, very at home writing a comic. You know, it's the sort of thing that I, I know how to write a sort of standard comic, you know, almost in my sleep. Um, which is one reason why I try not to sort of play it safe and often do things like weird graphic novels and strange genres and things just to kind of keep myself on my toes because I don't like to get complacent. Um, I haven't written that much prose fiction, as I said, but I do feel at home in it because when I was younger, that was pretty much all I did. Mm. Uh, I wasn't writing comic scripts then. What I was doing, if I did comics, I would draw them myself as well, but I wasn't actually writing comic scripts so i spent a large part of uh, my childhood writing prose fiction so even though it's not something i've done professionally a lot i do still feel quite at home in it um and you know i have found in recent times sort of dipping into screen stuff that because of my experience in comics i do actually feel quite at home there as well um yeah because i mean they're not the same and i'm not one of the people who would you know ever claim that like that they are the same or that oh comics are just like storyboards no they're not you know they're very different right sure but the formats are similar enough and what you need to focus on in the telling are similar enough that yeah I, i've found that sort of again feels you know fairly natural not as natural because like i say i haven't done a lot of it but you know it feels fairly natural to get myself into that so um yeah i don't know i kind of i've always been a bit of an all-rounder i guess um 
And, you know, there's the, there's always that worry that you're going to be the jack of all trades and the master of none. And, you know, maybe that's the case. I don't know. But that's for other people to say, not for me. But I've never really... I've I've never really had difficulty telling stories in a, a particular medium. And I think that's partly because I write a story when i have an idea for a story it generally comes along with oh this would make a great comic or this would make a great short story or this would make a great novel or whatever rather than having a story and thinking now what medium shall i write that story in uh you know mm. the medium generally comes along at the same time as the idea and the concept with me so maybe that helps i don't know because i'm never sort of trying to force a story idea into a medium that maybe it where it doesn't feel like it's a natural fit yeah, and I think that's I'm, that's what's going to work best, right? When you allow the story itself to naturally fit into the medium that best tells that story. Yeah, uh, I, that makes, I think that so. makes a lot of sense to me. I think so, and that's what I yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's certainly my belief, and that's why I do it that way. But like I say, it's for other people to judge how successful that is. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the successful stuff you've written on. Um, uh, what are some of the comics that people would know that uh, that you've been a part of? Uh, well, the most obvious one these days, especially now, is Atomic Blonde, which was originally known as The Coldest City. And that was a uh, Cold War spy thriller graphic novel that I published through Oni Press in 2012. Um, and of course, now has been made into the movie Atomic Blonde. Uh, so that's the one that most people are going to know. There is a second book in that series called The Coldest Winter. That was published at the end of last year, the end of 2016. And I am actually working on a third book uh, in that series uh, at the moment. Uh, I have no idea when that'll be published. It's, I'm literally just in the plotting stage. I haven't even scripted oh, it cool. yet. But I, I am fine. working on that, yeah. Um, the other books that people might know me from are, I did a series called Wasteland, also at Only Press, which was a big, epic, 60-issue post-apocalyptic series that took eight years to publish. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, you can get that in like 11 trades or five hardcovers, um or we've just released actually the first compendium which is the first 30 issues in one single massive doorstop sized <laughs> volume uh <laughs> and the second compendium i believe will be out sometime next year so uh but that was because it ran for so long that's uh you know one that quite a few people have heard of and know me for um and just because it was such an endeavor obviously 60 issues you know that's a long uh, it's a very small club of creators who've actually managed to do a 60-issue run of a complete comic sure. story, you know? Um, it's, it's a shockingly small club when you, you sort of realise how few people have done it. Well, certainly when I realised, it was like, oh my goodness, this is quite sort of rarefied company to be in um, and really don't feel like I belong in that company at all. Uh, and so what else? Oh, I did a book called The Fuse Image, uh, which is on hiatus at the moment, but we are going to bring it back hopefully next year, or if not, then the year after. Um, and that is uh, Cops in Space, basically. It's, it's like a police procedural, but set on a rundown space station orbiting the Earth. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah, and that's fun. That's been option for TV. Uh, but, oh, nice. You know, but but I'm, that's not an announcement about anything. There's nothing. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a long process. Oh, yeah. For, yeah, all yeah, that, yeah. for all that to happen. Did I see also you wrote on Daredevil? Is that correct? Oh, yes. I did a brief run uh, co-writing Daredevil with Andy Diggle when he took nice. over to do the Shadowlands storyline. And I did a few spin-off books during that time. As a result, I did uh, a couple of one-shots in the main sort of series, uh, Daredevil Cage Match 
which was um, a, a flashback story to Daredevil and Luke Cage having a boxing match uh, to see whether, you know, speed or strength would be the victor. Uh, and I <laughs> also did uh, Shadowland After the Fall, which was a one-shot epilogue from the point of view of Ben Urich after the fallout from Shadowland when Daredevil had left New York. And, uh, and then I also did a Shadowland miniseries called Blood on the Streets, which was basically a bunch of C-list heroes uh, solving a murder mystery, which was a lot of fun because that was my kind of thing, you know. Um, and then I did the Daredevil season one graphic novel. Uh, back back then, what was it, 2011 or so, Marvel did a series mm-hmm. of um, graphic novels called season one where they were retelling uh, the old, the, the first stories of these heroes but in modern in a modern fashion and some some of them changed the stories more than others my remit with the daredevil one i was asked to basically retell the same stories but just tell them in a in a modern way um but that was well received that was a new york times bestseller uh and you know that was a lot of fun to work on so yeah you know i did a couple of years working at marvel i did a shang chi miniseries during spider island as well which was a lot of fun because i love shang chi so yeah i did a couple of years there and that was that was fun so but the, but the, because because marvel books sort of turn over so quickly and you know they kind of come and go in the blink of an eye um i don't know whether most people would actually remember me from those sure. books if you know what i mean sure. so i i don't tend Absolutely. to sort of assume that people will remember my run because i didn't stick around at marvel for 10 years or something like some creators right a couple of years and then thought yeah this isn't you know a few things happened that made me think this isn't really for me and so backed out to sort of focus more on my my own creator own stuff so you mentioned uh, atomic blonde uh which has obviously been uh, a big hit uh, as a, a movie lover slash movie critic myself uh i i found it fascinating um, I am most curious to talk to you about the adaptation process. Uh, it is always one of those things where, from a fan's perspective, if you know the original material, you have expectations, you have, uh, you know, things that you want to see. Um, and this goes for not just, you know, a graphic novel, but it goes for, you know, uh, books or a TV show that's adapted into a movie uh, or a movie that's adapted into a TV show or, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm curious, as the creator yourself, do you feel like your perspective is even different than a fan's perspective? And, and how do you kind of view that whole process? Oh, it's very different. But that's partly because I was involved from the get-go. So what happened was, um, uh, obviously, the book was... I pitched the book in the middle of writing it. I actually started writing it with no publisher, no contract, um and that's a whole other story in and of itself but uh you know i i pitched it to only press they said yes we'll publish it and we'll do it sort of in the way that i wanted it to be published um and that was in 2008 uh i finished the script in 2010 and at some point along that way uh and this is things are a bit hazy here because i wasn't sort of day-to-day involved in the process but somewhere along that way uh only Press's Hollywood partners at the time took the pitch and the script, I think, out uh, to producers in Hollywood. Um, and one of the people they met with, one of the groups of people they met with were Charlize Theron's production company. And Charlize happened to be looking for something like that at that time. 
Um, and, you know, so sort of negotiations started from there. And then they optioned it in 2012, three months before the book hit the stands, before it was published. Um, and then obviously from there, it took five years to sort of get to the screen. But from the moment that the option was actually made, then from that point on, I was involved and kept in the loop uh, to one, you know, sort of degree or another, pretty much throughout. So I read the first draft of the screenplay and gave notes on it. Uh, I read subsequent drafts of the screenplay. I'm a co-producer on the movie because I was giving notes and feedback the whole time. Um, I was consulted on casting. I visited the set during filming. Uh, I saw a rough cut edit of the movie about a year before it came out and gave notes on that as well uh so all the way through this process i knew the changes that were being made uh you know i was already sort of right from the first script i knew oh this is going to be different um and then when dave leach and chad stelsky got involved i was like okay this is going to be very different uh in some ways and then even when chad and dave sort of you know split off to do john wick 2 and coldest city separately um it, i still knew it was going to be quite different and then when we had the casting and when james mcavoy was cast as percival who in the book is a middle-aged overweight mustachioed misogynist uh i was like okay <laughs> that's going to be different and then you know we already from the script knew that the French agent, who is a man in the book, was going to be a woman. That's played by Sophia Boutella uh, in the movie. So again, I already knew all of these changes were coming. So it's really difficult for me to have that sort of uh, fan's perspective of going in cold, having just read the book, and then going, oh, wow, this is really different, because I always knew it was going to be different. Sure. And, I, and I should also emphasize that I am very happy with the with the result i think it's a great version of the book i think there had to be changes made because if you just put the book on screen you risk it being very dull uh mm -hmm. you know the book is a very noirish sober john le carré style cold war thriller full of people in trench coats standing around talking and not a whole lot of action um and you know in a book that's great I'm very proud of the book, but it wouldn't work very well as a movie. Uh, and so I think what they did with that, what Kurt and Charlize and Dave did to turn this story into a movie and make it something that really comes alive on screen, I think was remarkable because the actual story of the movie is basically the same. You know, there's very, very little changed in the actual plot. Uh, but what they did was change the details to make them more cinematic and then obviously inject action wherever they could to keep things moving. And, you know, I think it worked. I say I'm really, really happy with not only the performances, but just the movie as a whole, the way it looks, the soundtrack, uh, you know, the sort of the way it moves. I just think it's a it's a really great adaptation. Do you have any fans of the original work, The Coldest City, who you have to kind of calm down who you know come to you or you know let's say they meet you at you know some sort of convention or something uh and they're upset about something that's changed and you have to be kind of the the voice of reason with them do you ever find yourself in that position i haven't yet i mean who knows um i haven't yet i think my i mean obviously you know the movie has opened up a whole new sort of audience of people who aren't familiar with, with my previous work and are now just coming to it for the first time um 
But those people generally are people who enjoyed the movie and so they've read the book as a result. Um, you know, if anything, they you know, I, I see compl complaints from people saying that they prefer the movie from those people saying like, oh, I, I love the movie. So I picked up the book, but the book's really boring. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, sorry. Um, we can't quite choreograph the same way a film can. Right. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean. In terms of my own sort of my regular readers, I think because of the kind of books I write and because of the way my career's gone, most of my readers are quite sane people, for want of a better word. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> good. they're not generally the type of people who go crazy and, yeah, sort of, you know, corner me at a bar somewhere and point out, all the different ways in which Atomic Blonde is a terrible adaptation of my work or whatever. I don't tend to get those fans, for which I'm very grateful. <laughs> As you look at uh, at the work, do you notice... Um, so you said the plot is pretty much the same. So I'm assuming kind of the twist and turns of what we know about these characters. Is that in the, uh, the Coldest City as well? And I guess the secondary follow-up question is, is that information revealed kind of in the same process as it is in the movie? more or less i mean like i say okay. you know details have changed but yes more or less you know if you've read the book you will recognize the characters on screen uh and if you've seen the movie you will recognize the characters in the book uh with albeit as i say with a few things like gender and age changes but yeah by and large you know the characters are the same the plot is more or less the same uh again changes in the details but you know the overall you'll recognize the shape of it and the framing device uh, of Charlize's character, Lorraine Broughton, being, you know, telling the story in flashback while being debriefed back in London at MI6 headquarters. Mm -hmm. That's directly from the book. That is exactly the book. Um, you know, so again, I saw people saying like, what a curious choice this is. And I'm like, well, not if you read the book. It, it's, you know, <laughs> that's what the book is. Um, now, there are some differences in the ending, and I don't want to say too much for fear of spoiling things for people who haven't, seen the movie or read the book or right. both um there are some changes in the ending there are some changes in the way things are revealed in the ending and what is revealed and why it's revealed um but that's because the movie was made with an eye to this being the start of a series yeah. uh now who knows whether that will happen you know we still haven't had any official confirmation that there is going to be a second movie but that was definitely everybody would like to do one that was always the intent uh you know it was made so that it can be a movie by itself if if that's the way things shake out you know if if there isn't a second movie then it it lives as a complete satisfying movie and story in and of itself but there is stuff there and some of this stuff you know that is not in the graphic novel that would enable us to make more movies, uh, you know, and, and for it to feel natural. Whereas the book was never written with that intention. Um, and so, yeah, the book ending is a little different and its motives and reasons for being different are particular to the book. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and that is a tough balance to pull off, the idea of setting up a world that you can explore further and at the same time finishing a story so it feels complete and it feels oh, yeah. satisfying, you know, well, the resolution. And I did that That's... in, you see, I, I did that in the graphic novel, but I can do it in the graphic novel differently because the idea there, because I always wanted to do a series, but the idea there was that the series is based around Berlin 
not around a particular character. You can't do that in a movie franchise. You know, nobody's <laughs> nobody's going right. to buy that. Nobody's going to go and see it. If people want to go and see a second Atomic Blonde movie, they want to see Charlize. They want to see the Atomic Blonde, you know, so it has yeah. to be geared around her rather than the location. And so, yeah, that's why some of these changes were made. As you say, it's a very, very difficult balance to pull off in both media, in both cases. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm also curious about some of the the stuff that I saw in the movie, if if this was your intent in the graphic novel as well. But I really felt like that uh, uh, that central character was given permission uh, not to be a quote unquote woman spy, but just to be a spy. Oh, and yes. I feel like I feel like the way the movie even shot her was very gender neutral. And I loved that. Like, there, you know, there's that scene of her rising up out of the ice tub. Uh, and it's kind of focusing on like the muscles of her back, you know, and the bruises and those kind of things. And you just don't usually see even women action stars shot in that way. Uh, and I wonder if that's something that, you know, was kind of a, a seed of what you were thinking with this character originally. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, that was part of the reason why Charlize was drawn to the material was the way that Lorraine is is depicted, uh, you know, and she wanted she she really clicked to the idea that she's a spy she's doing a job she's not rescuing her kidnapped daughter right. uh, you know she's not sort of overly traumatized by some event in her past that has now come back to haunt her and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with those stories but that's not this story you know in this story lorraine is a spy doing a job carrying out her mission and i made a very deliberate point in the graphic novel of the fact that she's a woman it it is commented on and it does have an effect because she is a woman navigating a world dominated by men and that absolutely does play out in the book and it you know it is important in the book at the same time she herself does not uh restrict herself from doing anything because she's a woman and that was very important to me you know that as a yeah. character she does not sort of self-censor herself or her actions and the things that happen to her and the actions she takes are exactly the same actions that a male spy would take uh right. now you know again the details may change because she's a woman but broadly um you know she will do things and the things that will happen to her are just exactly the same as if this was a male spy in the same story. And like I say, that's one of the things that Charlie's really dug into in the character and that attracted her to the character, I'm told, was that, you know, this woman was just doing her job and she, uh, you know, didn't have this any kind of traditional female character attachment that or you know overly emotional attachment to something in the story that so many stories like that featuring female characters do um and it's kind of absurd that that would make the story feel fresh but it does it really does um and so yeah that was again dave leach really sort of picked up on that and focused on it and that's why the movie was shot in that particular way and why as you say the camera the way it follows charlie's it doesn't follow her like a sort of lascivious voyeur uh like right. so like so many you know um female stars uh female action st- starring action movies do um yeah it was the, 
everybody was on board with that idea that like no she is just yes she's a woman but she's a woman doing her job and that is more important than man you you know you, you can f- go ahead. sorry go on i was just gonna say you can feel it you can feel it in in the heart of the movie there's just such a humanity to it uh to that character and you know you mentioned uh the way that we've been talking about the way the camera follows her and when the movie wants to be sensual it's sensual that's fine sure. like it, it knows when those moments are but even in some of the you well, know non- and charlie's non- looks fabulous throughout the whole thing i mean that's sure. the, you know there's sure. no she's a beautiful woman and she looks amazing in lovely clothes so you know they do shoot those things but again yeah no more so than when you see james bond in a lovely ten thousand right. dollar tuxedo you know and I think there's such a, even I was going to say even in the uh, the non-sensual nudity that's in the movie, you get, you really get a sense of the humanity of the character, not the sensuality of the character. Yes. And I I just I found that really affecting and um, so important I think because you know especially with the stuff uh, we're seeing in the news uh, you know uh, about harassment and abuse and and you know these kind of things, I think Hollywood has an issue with objectifying women that they really need to deal with and i was really impressed with this movie's ability not to be objectifying in that way yeah well and that's one of the advantages of making the movie the way we did with a sort of medium budget and outside of the studio system uh because it meant that charlie's had so much control and was able to exercise so much control without a large studio sort of sticking their oar in for want of a better phrase mm-hmm. uh and you know that did allow us a lot of creative freedom in that sense um and yeah i mean the the fact <laughs> it's it's again it's absurd but the fact that charlie's gets beaten up and visibly beaten up and yeah. you know carries scars and bruises and a bloodshot eye through most of the movie and that sort of thing the fact that that is uh almost feels you know revolutionary just because she's a woman. I mean, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. But it, the fact is that it does. You know, she she knew that we were doing things and she was depicting herself in a way that many uh, directors and frankly, many female stars would not allow the female star of a movie to be mm. depicted in that sure. way. Um, yeah. But because she was producing it, because, you know, this was her movie. She could do that and she could say, yeah, this is how I want it to be. And, you know, that's why, I mean, she and Dave worked very closely to, you know, because obviously she wanted to make sure that he was the right director for the movie. And like I say, he was completely on board with all of that. And if anything, he pushed it even further. And he gave the movie uh, the lovely sort of neon soaked, saturated color uh, look that it has jonathan saylor was the uh cinematographer and he did a you know an amazing job but it was dave's concept to say okay this is a noir we can't make a black and white noir you can't do that on screen anymore right so what if, and this is the 80s so what if instead we focus on the really sort of you know neon trashy oversaturated side of the 80s can we do that and still make it a noir well, the answer we now know is yes. <laughs> but that was, you know, nobody knew at the time. He was like, I think we can make this work. But nobody knew. And then, of course, yeah, you know, he and Jonathan really pulled it off. And it looks amazing as a result. It's actually what I was going to go into next. I was going to ask you about the time period in, in the 80s and um, 
it's another thing that really stands out the about the movie is how uh, chronologically aware it is. You know, it's so yeah. aware of the time and space that it's in. Uh, did you feel like that was a direct result of what you had written in the, the graphic novel as well? No, I think most of that actually is down to uh, Kurt's, Kurt Jonstad's screenplay uh, and Dave and Jonathan. Um, I mean, and there were production designers and stuff involved in there as well, obviously. But in terms of setting the direction, I think most of that was down to Kurt and Dave because uh, Kurt made lots of pop culture references in the script and then Dave really pushed them uh, and yeah, sort of push the soundtrack and what have you in the direction. The book actually, I mean, it is very firmly set in and I hope evocative of uh, the late 1980s, but in a very different way. The approach I took was to make make it very grey and stark and industrial and focus on the sort of, especially in Berlin, on the kind of urban blight, if you will, of the late right. 80s and the sort of, you know, almost post-industrial uh you know scenery so it is evocative of that time period but of a very different side of that time period whereas yeah dave like i say wanted to really focus on the kind of the pop culture and the saturated colors and the crazy fashion and all that sort of stuff but again without ever going into parody and i think that's part of what i love about the movie is that it would have been so easy for that approach to tip over into parody you know, mm-hmm. and to become something that you would raise laughs when you see it on screen, rather than for those of us who lived through the eighties, looking at it and going, "Yeah, that's how the eighties. That's how I remember them. That's what it felt like to me." I uh, man, I just I find you to be so unselfish with your material. That's that is such a great quality to be able to be collaborative like that. And uh, I, I and in fact, go I've, ahead. I've done adaptations myself. Uh, I one of the things I do is I make uh, I do graphic novel adaptations of a series of um, teen uh, spy books, actually <laughs> the Alex Ryder books by Anthony Horowitz. Uh, I write the graphic novel adaptation scripts of okay. those for Walker. So you've books. been on the other side then, exactly here in the UK in Philomel, I think it is in the in the US. And yeah, exactly. So and I've also adapted other stuff. I've adapted works by Alan Moore into comics and what have you. So I've been on the other side of that fence. And I understand the process and I understand that you, when you're moving from one medium to another, you have to make changes and decisions that are not the same as those of the original material in order to make that material work in a new medium. Um, that was one of the first things I said to everybody when I got to the set, when I visited the set. Uh, Charlize and Dave and several other people were all kind of, oh, I hope you don't mind that we've changed this and we've changed that and we've and Charlize is blonde, she doesn't have black hair like in the book and you know, I think they were really worried that I would be sensitive about that stuff and understandably, I'm sure some people maybe would have been, but I was, I was very like, no, I am not, that's fine, I'm not precious about this at all. Um, I understand this process. I have written the best graphic novel that I can and it's there and it still exists and nobody can ever take that away from me. Now it is your job to make the best movie you can. This is what I do. Now, you know, this is what it's rather that's what I do. Now this is what you do making the movie. This is your area. You go and make the best movie you can because if we have a great movie come out of the end of this, that's the best result no matter how faithful or not it may be to the source material. My favorite movie is Blade Runner for heaven's sake which is almost nothing like its source material. Um, <laughs> or even in the same genre, and I use this as an example, look at the Born Identity. The Born Identity books are almost nothing like the movie series, you know, with, um, what's his face? Uh, I've forgotten his name, the actor. 
Matt Damon? Matt Damon, yes. Yeah. The, the books are almost nothing like those movies. You know, the, the, yes, there's an amnesiac special agent guy called Jason Bourne and he has a little microchip embedded in his thigh. That's about the extent of the similarity <laughs> between those two things. Uh, and yet they're great books and they're great movies. You know, that's I'm absolutely fine with that. So I never had a problem with these changes being made as long as it was done to make a better movie. That was my only sort of, you know, just as long as you're doing this because it will make a better movie, go for it. With my blessing, I'm very happy. Can you imagine the other side of that? Can you imagine a moment where you feel like, uh, you know, an adapter is going in the wrong direction? And have you ever kind of imagined how you would react in that situation? Like, if is there, I guess I should say, is there a way, something they could do where you would, um, where you would have something to say about it in that way? Oh, sure. Uh, well, and like I said, I gave notes and feedback on like, you know, things here and there that I thought maybe could have been handled better, uh, you know, or scenes that I thought maybe didn't work and could could have worked a better way or whatever. Uh, and, you know, they they followed or didn't, uh, you know, my suggestions as much as they wanted to. So, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be things where you look at it and go, oh, you know, maybe that could be you know different or handled better or whatever. But never from a perspective of oh, this isn't like I wrote it in the book and therefore it's no good. You know, mm. I was always looking at it from the perspective of, okay, within the context of this movie, does this work? And if not, how could we make it work better? And like I say, I don't want to sort of overplay my role here. You know, I was, co-producer is way down the totem pole, you know, <laughs> it's like, and I wasn't sure. involved day to day. It's not like I was on set every day or anything like that. But when I was asked to, I gave my notes and I gave my feedback, you know, and I sort of studied the material. And like I say, you know, they did or didn't follow my suggestions according to their own, uh, you know, decisions. But like I say, I am entirely happy leaving that part of the process up to people who do that that's what they do for a living they don't come into my job and tell me how to write a graphic novel i'm not going to presume that i know better than them when making a movie oh, i'll have suggestions sure but i'm not going to sort of stamp my feet and insist that because it's different to the graphic novel it must therefore be bad i think there is i think what we're finding in this conversation is there almost should be a different word rather than adaptation. I, it maybe it should be collaboration. You know, I feel like Atomic Blonde was a collaboration between you, you know, and them to bring this to the screen, whereas some material is more just an adaptation. They buy the rights, they do what they want, they don't even, you know, necessarily talk to the creator. And those are two different situations in many ways. I guess, yeah. I mean, like I say, I don't want to sort of build up my own part too much. You know, it's not like they were hanging on my every word. Sure, um, sure. But they said, we would like you to be involved. Would right. you like to be involved? And so I said, yes, I'd be delighted to. They had every right to not do that, as you say, to, you know, one of the situations where they just go, right, we're going to make a movie now. Off you go. You've been paid. Leave us alone. Uh, and they had every right to do that. But to their great credit... Uh, you know, the producers and Charlie's and Dave and lots of people involved were like, no, we would like you to be involved, actually. Uh, you know, let's let's all go on this ride together. Um, and so, so I gladly did. Uh, and I think that's that's obviously going to be the way it works the best. Do you ever look uh, around at other adaptations and feel empathy for the creators or, you know, kind of have a different perspective. I think of like Game of Thrones is a big one, of course, you know, you've got these books and then this TV show blows up and all of a sudden the TV show is writing the story and the author of the actual story hasn't caught up to the TV show. Like, do you ever look at those situations from a creator, you know, perspective and 
and have kind of a different view? Um, yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones is a really weird one because I read the books and I have been reading the books since, you know, the early 2000s, long before the TV show. Uh, and I love the books and I actually haven't watched the TV show for quite some time because it started to diverge from the books. And I was like, well, I don't I don't want to have that in my head when I'm reading the books. Uh, you know, I don't want to be com- be comparing the books when they finally come out to mm-hmm. uh, to what I've seen on the screen. Um, so that that's a very odd, you know, and strange situation that one. It but is. I, but I have seen, yeah, I've seen movie adaptations of books and comics and stuff where I've thought, ah, you know, that that could have been better. Um, yeah, and that's just. But that's the way. Nobody sets out to make a bad movie. You know, some some things work and some things don't for better or for worse and for many different reasons um you know i've been very fortunate in that we've you know we've got a movie that i really like that a lot of other people like and that has been financially successful honestly you know that's (laughs) that's as much as you can hope for some right (laughs) uh you know that's three for three as far as i'm concerned so yeah you know when you see a movie that isn't creatively successful uh, you can't help but feel a bit sorry for the people who made the original material because, like it or not, movies are the preeminent global storytelling medium. You know, mm. nothing yeah. is bigger. And I work in video games, which is, you know, a lot of people will tell you that video games is going to be the next big uh, preeminent storytelling medium. And maybe they're correct. But right now, movies is still, that is the pinnacle for, you know, the masses around the world is having a movie that's what they watch that's what they regard as the most important thing and so if you have a good movie it reflects well on the original material an adaptation i mean it reflects well on Mm -hmm. the original material people will go i really enjoyed that movie therefore i might enjoy the source material i'll go and buy it which is great for us obviously and conversely if you see a movie that you don't enjoy that's an adaptation you're almost never going to go well i didn't like the movie but maybe the book will be better that that <laughs> you know that almost never happens um and so that's primarily the sympathy that i feel for uh creators in that situation because you know it has the potential and it has done with atomic blonde you know our sales have spiked as you might ex- expect of coldest city and coldest winter um and that's what everybody hopes for you know uh, no matter how involved you are in a movie adaptation of your work, you always hope that it will reflect well on the original work because that's what that's what we actually wrote. You know, that's the th- part that we actually did. And so that's the part that we want to get in people's hands. And so, of course, when that doesn't happen, that can be a great disappointment, uh, I'm sure. And so that, as I say, is where I would feel the most sympathy, I think, for for people who've been in that situation but yeah what can i say you know first time out for me and we got lucky um we just happened to get all the right things in the right place at the right time and ended up with a movie that we're all very happy with who knows in five years time there might be another one that i'll be fuming about and you know (laughs) i'll be in the position of uh, (laughs) the one people are feeling sorry for you never can tell (laughs) uh well Anthony, you mentioned uh, something that I cannot uh, just brush by, which is that you're a Blade Runner fan, so we have to talk about the new movie. I'm assuming if you're a fan, you've seen it. I have not, because it's only been out here oh. in the UK for a, for a short while. I'm going to see it as we record. We're recording on Friday, and I'm going to see it tomorrow on Saturday. Oh, nice. 
Uh, Man, I, I wish you had seen it. I have so much trepidation, honestly. I wasn't, yeah, tell me about your feelings. Well, I wasn't going to go and see it. Uh, when it was announced, I was like, no, no. Like, I've never read <laughs> the Blade Runner 2 novel and things like that. I was like, no, no, no. Bad idea, um, no. But then the reviews started coming in. And I haven't read any of the reviews in terms of actually reading through them, you know, because I don't want to be spoiled and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I have read enough and seen enough headlines and seen enough tweets to know that lots of people, many people who I respect, have said, oh my goodness, this is actually great. This is way, way better than we could have expected. And so, and not everyone, I know that's not universal, but that was enough for me to say, okay, all right, then then I will... I will go and watch it and and judge for myself. But if we hadn't had those advance that advance word from people saying, "Oh, actually this is really great." I wouldn't even contemplate going to see it because Blade Runner for me is just it is my favorite movie of all time. I love it so much. As a uh, movie reviewer, that just warms my heart. It means we have purpose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um I will join the chorus, and I, I know you don't know my movie reviews from uh, from Adam's movie reviews, but uh, it is uh, it is a fabulous, wonderful, beautiful film. Uh, I think I ended up giving it an A, which I which is very rare for me actually. So um, I absolutely loved it. So I will join that chorus for you of people encouraging you that it might be worth your time. Awesome. Well, yeah, as I say, certainly. I mean, you know, obviously, I'll make my own judgment, but sure. yeah, you know. Uh, all of that sort of advanced word has at least made me go, okay, I should probably go and see this so that I can judge for myself. Yeah, we reviewed it on the on the podcast. Uh, I reviewed it with a huge Blade Runner fan, a uh, big fan of the original, which, which I am not a fan of the original movie. I came to it late uh, with high, high expectations based on what I had heard and found it a little tedious and boring and kind of the typical comments you'll hear with people who don't enjoy it as much as others. Sure. Uh, but... Um, but I found all what's interesting is I found all the things that I didn't like about the original Blade Runner, I actually loved about the new Blade Runner. So it's an interesting kind of difference in perspective and and that kind of thing. So right, um, but he right. he loved it even as a fan of the original Blade Runner. He was trepidatious as well and he he said it was phenomenal. So it just feels like such a real sequel, you know, to the original. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm basically I'm hoping that we get aliens to you know to blade runner's alien right uh, yeah, yeah not exactly. not in the literal sense of like you know bigger better more explosions but just in terms of oh actually this is as good as the, it's different but it's as good as the original you can all relax now <laughs> yeah <laughs> very nice well thank you annie i appreciate your time uh it's been very cool to chat with you about uh kind of hey, your work welcome. Yeah, and this has been adaptation i found a lot of that stuff really fascinating if somebody wants to connect further with you uh, get to know your work better. Where, sh where should we send people? So the key to finding me online is spelling my name correctly uh, because it is a little unusual uh, spelling. And so, but if you get it right, as a result, uh, I can get any URL, any social media account, you know, it's great. <laughs> so as long as you spell it right, you will find me. And so that is Anthony Johnston. It is A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. So there is no H in Anthony and there is a T in Johnston. A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Put that into Twitter, Google, whatever, you will find me. And honestly, if you put me into Google, I think like the first four pages are all me. Uh, my <laughs> URL is AntonJohnston.com. My Twitter is at AnthonyJohnston. My Facebook.com slash Anthony. You know, you get the idea. So yeah, just make sure you spell it correctly and you'll find me. 
It's a fun thing to have, isn't it? I have that too. My last name is actually Dicer, D-I-C-E-R. Mm-hmm. And there are no other Dicers but my family. It is the weirdest thing. You wow. can Google our last name and it's just us. And I don't know how it happened. I should do a documentary. I should do the research. I should figure it out. That's crazy, you, yeah. You can, go, you can go on Facebook and search for my last name. And you may get a couple uh, Dicers from like the Philippines, but you won't get any English-speaking Dicers. So Aaron Dicer is just me. And so anything I want, wow. I can get just like you were saying. And uh, if you Google me, it'll all be about me. So it, it is quite uh, handy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It really is. It really is. It's a lot of fun. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, best to you as you kind of continue down this journey. I'm really excited to see uh, what that next project is. Uh, you mentioned starting to write for the screen. That seems really fun. I know you can't speak a lot about it, but um, but excited to see kind of where that goes for you. Yeah, well, and the the very next thing that I have uh, out is a novel, actually, if anybody's interested in more spy stuff from me uh, that is not doesn't take place during the Cold War. I have a um, <laughs> contemporary uh, cyber espionage spy thriller uh, starring a new uh, character, another female spy working for MI6, and that is called The Exphoria Code. Uh, E-X-P-H-O-R-I-A. So like Euphoria, but with an X. The Exphoria Code. And that comes out from Lightning Books in the UK in December. And hopefully, again, if you follow me online, if you find me online, follow my Twitter or whatever, hopefully we'll be announcing a US publisher soon uh, as well. But if you're in the UK or Europe... Or the Commonwealth, uh, you'll be able to find it. Yeah, uh, in uh, through Lightning Books in the UK on I think it's December fourteenth, the day before Star Wars comes out. So that's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, there you go. Now you you've tied <laughs> it to that, so people just go get the book the day before they go see Star Wars. It Absolutely. makes complete sense. Yeah, <laughs> just read it during the movie, right? That's yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Anthony. I appreciate your time. Uh, You're very cool. welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today for Sif Pop. It's part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about other live and later shows on the network by following the feed at Mixler.com slash Studio DNA. That's M-I-X-L-R.com slash Studio DNA. Huge thanks to Anthony Johnston for coming by today again. As he said, if you want to check him out, just search for him. Google him. You'll find all his stuff. It's Anthony with no H. Johnston with a T. Uh, it should be just him in your results. Thank you, Anthony, for coming by. Really appreciated uh, the conversation we had. thought it was a lot of fun. Much love and gratitude as well to our Patreon supporters for giving monthly to make this show and others on the network possible. Support starts at 3 bucks a month. Comes with some pretty fun perks. You can find out more at patreon.com slash studiodna. Lots of ways to connect with the podcast. SoundCloud, Twitter, uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also email us, feedback at sifpop.com. If you have a Sift quest you want us to go on uh, where you have a question for us or a debate to settle uh, I'd love to have one we actually just emptied out our tub of sift quests so we are empty until next week so uh, if you want to fill that up with a question you have or a debate that you want us to solve just email feedback at siftpop.com or hit me up on twitter Uh, my dms are open so you can uh, dm it to me as well and finally if you're having a good time your movie loving friends will probably like this show too so let them know about it and that listening is much easier than they probably think in fact you can show them how to do podcasts it really is that simple uh we should be back next week to chat actual movies and spoilers with the spoiler section and all that kind of fun stuff so we'll see you then brain fog insomnia moodiness weight gain 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.